Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Bookwaves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. Joyce Carol Oates is one of America's greatest writers and one of its most prolific. Over a career that spans nearly six decades, according to Wikipedia, she's written 58 novels, and according to Goodreads, she has had 116 books published. She's been a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction five times and has been nominated and won many other literary awards. Among her best-known works, and perhaps her magnum opus, is Blonde, one of the Pulitzer finalists and a nominee for the National Book Award. This epic novel from 2000 is a retelling of the life of Marilyn Monroe and is soon to be a motion picture starring Anna de Armas. On May 3rd, 2000, my late co-host Richard A. Lupoff and I interviewed Joyce Carol Oates about Blonde and about her career. This wide-ranging conversation was one of the last analog recordings we made and has not been heard in 20 years. Blonde it's a mixture of fact and fiction, as are many books, but it seems to move into a different direction. It is not quite a docudrama because it's more novel than that, and yet many of the characters are quite real, and some of them are quite alive at this point. So I'd like to start by asking you about stretching the boundaries between fiction and nonfiction, and more specifically, how far can you go, do you think, with using a particular biography as a fictional iconography? Well, I think it's a very good question. It's very pr provocative. And for those of us who are interested in the theory of literature, it is very stimulating. Basically, I wanted to write a novel about the life, the private life, of someone we think we know as Marilyn Monroe. And obviously, I'm looking at a mythic American cultural icon and wanting to get beyond that or beneath it, and also dealing with the person who becomes this icon. So I was really focusing upon the phenomenon of a private and almost ordinary or average human being in America to whom celebrity comes fairly soon in her life. And that would seem to me that if this happened to us, there would be an element of the surreal and even the hallucinatory that things would happen to us that had a quality of almost of Alice in Wonderland. So the novel is basically somewhat experimental. And when real people enter into the orbit of Norma Jean Baker or Marilyn Monroe, many of them have the cast of a somewhat mythic definition. For instance, Joe DiMaggio doesn't appear in the novel as himself, but he's the ex-athlete. Arthur Miller doesn't appear in the novel as himself. He's the playwright. And John F. Kennedy is mythologized as the president. So it's, it both is and isn't a realistic novel. There's a film that came out several years ago called The Goddess, which is, uh, have, are you familiar with the film? I've, I've seen, I mean, I've, I've heard the title, and I, I'm, I mean to see it, but I didn't see it yet. Okay, because it deals with many of the same themes. And, but it's not really Marilyn Monroe, it's a... It's, yeah. Sort of a generic... It's a, it's a generic individual. Individual, uh, uh, yes. And what's, uh, Kim Stanley plays the character, and yes. what's astonishing is that creating a sex goddess out of an individual who physically is not attractive is, is, uh, is kind of a jump because she wasn't that attractive at the time. So it's kind of an interesting... But the movie worked? The movie works, very much uh -huh. so. The question that, that is, I think, unavoidable is, is whether Norma Jean Baker or Marilyn Monroe was totally a victim or was she in some sense responsible for herself or, or yet a third possibility. Did she really <laughs> exist at all? 
Norma Jean Baker obviously existed, and we have our various projections and interpretations of her. If you look at the actual history as evidence in the biographies, you can see that she was a very yearning and hopeful girl, deeply insecure. She may have been very ambitious simply as a way of surviving, the way desperate people sometimes seem to be driven because they feel that they don't have any other alternative or their backs are against the wall. In boxing sometimes, and I've written a book on boxing and I know a little, a few boxers, but in boxing sometimes a young athlete will feel that every time he climbs into the ring he's fighting for his life. And it sounds like an extreme statement, but I think that what they mean is they're fighting desperately not to be knocked out yet because if they're knocked out, their career may end. So Norma Jean was rather like that. She came from a very loveless background. She had no money. She had no protection in terms of a family. She had virtually no self-definition. So she was complicit in any fate that was offered to her. She was an accomplice. I wouldn't think of her as being a victim. She was offered, for instance, a position as a model. Well, another girl might say, well, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be modeling in bathing suits, you know. And another girl might have said, I will not bleach my hair. They told her to bleach her hair. Now, Marilyn Monroe, in real life, did these things. She was not yet Marilyn Monroe. She was actually Norma Jean. They said, bleach your hair, and she did. Now, some of us may not have done that, but then we would not have been Marilyn Monroe. No one would have heard of us. Overnight, after she bleached her hair this very synthetic color, overnight she became the most sought-after model in her, in her modeling agency. So that worked. It was sort of a, it's trickery, and it's very synthetic. It's a marketing device, become a blonde, and it did work. She wasn't a victim. Well, there's a desperation involved, though, and you're you're raising the simile of, of boxing as as strange as it may sound. I can I can see the comparison be, because I've read some of your work on on boxing, the the desperation and the ferocity that that this situation Im, imposes upon us. Uh, I kept thinking of your essay on Mike Tyson and the desperation and ferocity that drove him to literal cannibalism in the ring. Well, literal cannibalism when he when he bit Evander Holyfield's ear. Yes. <laughs> yeah, he bit it twice. Uh, actually, at that point, I don't think he was desperate anymore. The young Mike Tyson was someone who was fighting for his life, but the Tyson we have now, who is really over the hill, he's over his 30s, He's over 30. He's not really a young, hungry fighter any longer. But when he was young, he was, of course, from a ghetto, and he didn't have a family. He was out on the street when he was 10 years old. Uh, so, too, Norma Jean Baker had a mother who, some, for some reason, for one reason or another, primarily because she was mentally unstable, the mother didn't love her. And the, the analog, I think, holds that there are some people in our society who are so desperate and so driven to be accepted, to be loved, to be respected, that they will do so much more than the average person will. Hunger and this drive, is so, this fierce drive, is something that happens in a lot of your books. And I'm just wondering, in a more general sense, whether we're talking about the American dream. We see it uh, in, in books as disparate as Because It's Bitter and Because It Is My Heart, uh, down through even even black water, uh, where the the heroine is thinking about her future and her own desperation there. But but it it's something that's a constant theme through your books, and I'd like you to address it both in terms of the American dream and in terms of the writing of Joyce Carol Oates. Well, I suppose it is predominant. It's not that I'm always thinking about these things. Actually, it may be part of our American story. America was settled. Part, partly by people who might have been seen as desperate. I don't mean the original settlers, and I don't mean the Puritans, 
though there may have been an, an air of uh, messianic zeal in those people. But you could say that America was settled by people who were in some ways misfits. You know, they weren't fitting into Europe, European culture. They weren't they weren't that well-to-do in England, so they come to this country. And then it's almost like a free-for-all where it's, here's this country. It's it's un, uncultivated. It's unsettled. And people are literally running out to the West and, and seeking their fortunes, trying to, trying to mine gold. So there's something special about the United States as a phenomenon in history that it does seem to embody these these characteristics we associate with Darwinian evolutionary theory, let's think, this survival of the fittest and natural selection, uh, rather more than a society more settled like like England, where there's a very definite class structure. Uh, you have the desperate characters coming out of desperate situations, but then you've got, particularly in Blonde, the reverse the wealthy character who doesn't know what to do with themselves. And in particular, I'm thinking of uh, the characters you call the Gemini, uh, Charlie Chaplin Jr. and Edward G. Robinson Jr. Well, they weren't really wealthy. They were the sons of quite well-known fathers, but the fathers weren't very generous with them. Charlie Chaplin Sr. was not a good father to Charlie Chapman Jr. So the connection between Norma Jean and these two young men was basically that they all had problem fathers. Norma Jean didn't know who her father was. They and they could never forget who their fathers were. Does this father problem, does it pervade your works? Uh, I, I might suggest that it does, but that wouldn't be fair. I, I'd rather, I'm thinking in, in, in your, of your essays about people like uh, Ed Guy and Jeffrey Dahmer and and uh, Ted Bundy, and at the same time, a novel like Foxfire, where there are all these problem fathers. Well, in Foxfire, there's a certain myth, I think, that that girls can have their own world, their own autonomy. I thought of Foxfire as rather more of a, almost like a ballad or a folktale, that the girls can create a society that's autonomous and it's sort of vis-a-vis -vis and antagonistic to men. And many of the fathers don't exist, and they're just not, they're not there. You know, they're, they're gone from the families. So the girls have to embody masculine traits in themselves. Did you feel, or did you intend that there should be a sort of dreamlike quality to Foxfire? Yes, as I said, something like a ballad. In the very beginning of Foxfire, Maddie, who's the narrator, is remembering how Legs, the leader of the gang, comes flying across the rooftops, and it's almost like a cinematic image. A movie was made of this novel, but they didn't use that image. To me, that would have been the beginning, where you had this girl, and it's, it's nighttime, and she's running across the rooftops, and her blonde hair is flying, and it's almost like an, an image out of the unconscious or like a fairy tale or something. Definitely, I meant that. But then as the novel goes on, it gets more realistic, and the girls are are confronting real people. Like, they they meet some men, in one case, a, a father of a, of a classmate, and he's a real person. He's actually kind of nice, but they think he's the enemy, and they can't see that this nice man is nice, you know, and they, they cause him to die. They... they uh, well, they almost, they almost caused his death. So I wanted to show the collision between the delusionary world of girls constructing their own society, confronting the real world where male and female must live together. And to me, Foxfire was a critique of, of extreme feminism, saying that all men are the enemy. Well, I don't believe that. I think some men are the enemy, but some women are the enemy too. Basically, the enemy is falsifying reality. To what extent is Foxfire autobiographical? I did know some girls a little bit like that, and I was a little bit like Maddie, who gets her typewriter at about the same age. But then much of it's fiction. The girls I was writing about didn't have these mythic qualities, and we didn't have a gang. We didn't do these things. It's more like wish fulfillment. But they come out all right in the end, don't they? Uh, most of them do. They have a great Dodge automobile. Again, the automobile to me was so important 
to that world of the 1950s, but again, the movie didn't have any automobile. I think they had a low budget. <laughs> Couldn't the, afford it. <laughs> as I hear you talk about a book I haven't read, I keep relating the images in the, that book to Blonde or even to Because It Is Bitter. And again, I see the same themes recur. The, the difficult father who disappears and Because It Is Bitter, the non-father of Blonde, and your, your struggle with the relationship of reality and myth. In Blonde, you've said that the entire book, in a sense, is coming out of this Norma Jean who exists out of time. Yes, I, I thought of it having a voiceover, almost like a, a long movie. And I wonder about how that voice perceives the difference between reality and myth. <clears throat> That's a very probing question. It may have been that I imagined a perspective that was timeless as if having passed out of her mortal body, her spirit is somehow able to brood upon past and near present. And so she can look upon her earliest life and her, with her memories with her mother and the search for the father. It's almost as if we might have a spirit independent of the body. And I'm not... Uh, I'm not meaning to be mystical or especially religious about this, but it is quite possible, you know, that somehow we transcend the body and we can look in, into the deep past. So basically there's no time element in Blonde because it's it's all one time. But then, of course, most of the novel does respect chronological order. Well, the reason I'm driving at that is because since you deal with the the, the iconography and the myth of the ex-ball player, the playwright, the Gemini, her main companions in the course of the book, as well as just focusing on individual movies, wouldn't a spirit in that sense only deal with those major themes rather than the lesser ones if you're looking back on a life like that? Life. Well, I think we look back upon our lives sometimes when we're just in a state of meditation and we see how we were so compelled to take very seriously things that in retrospect were very insignificant. You know, it's like we don't really know what's important at the time. We can be overcome by uh, a trivial thing. When I was reading uh, a, a biography about you titled Invisible Writer, yes. there was mention of how you, Joyce Smith, perceives Joyce Carol Oates as this other entity, and perhaps even Rosamond Smith as this other entity. And I was thinking about that in relation to Blonde, where Marilyn Monroe is a minor entity in the life mm -hmm. of Norma Jean. Well, that's true. She's a minor entity at first, and then she becomes something that's almost suffocating and overwhelming. But she never is Marilyn Monroe. It's this act. And yeah, well, yeah, I think that's true. It's the way she's perceived. Well, it's, um, it's a question, I think, of how one defines oneself. Obviously, when we're very young, we have our names that our parents have given us. And probably we retain that identity throughout our lives. What, what, what I'm driving at here is, who am I talking to? Am I talking to Joyce Carol Oates, the icon? Am I talking to Joyce Smith, the person? Well, let's say there's no icon. Icons don't exist. An icon is a statue or a poster or a face on a, a cigarette box, you know. Basically, that's a brand name. So I, you can't talk to an icon, and the person who stands in for the icon may, may be kind of embarrassed or amused or whatever. If Norma Jean Baker could see her own image all over, you know, she, the image of her at the age of 26 when she was in Genoma Preferred Blondes, this is the one that's all over, she would now be about 71 or 73 years old, and she would look upon this and probably just laugh and say, well, did I ever look like that? Probably not, because I was airbrushed, and they fixed my hair, and they took 1,600 photographs to get that one. No, you're basically talking to Joyce. <laughs> you could just call me Joyce, and I'm a person who's been around for quite a while, I do have the same personality, basically, that I had when I was 12 or 11 or probably 5. 
Certainly the same personality I had when I was 16, 21. So I think we have a persistent quality of personality that goes through our entire lives. And sometimes even in families, there are mannerisms and habits of speech and just the way you hold your head. You'll see it in the whole family. And one person has it throughout his or her entire life. So Norma Jean, when she was 5, 6, 10, 11 years old, is basically the same person who will have to deal with the overwhelming phenomenon of being, quote, Marilyn Monroe when she's in her 20s. But when you're talking to me and you're that same 12-year-old person, how would you perceive the writer Joyce Carol Oates? Would you see that as the name on a book or, or as, say, Marilyn would see it or Norma Jean would see Marilyn Monroe as the name on a film? Well, again, it really is a very profound question because a writer or an artist tends to be a person who is intensely involved in a project, one after another, the way an actor is intensely involved in his or her performance. But though we do remember the work, I think, quite well, I remember all my books, we are not so intensely involved in it. It would be as if you were asked to remember in, in detail something, a paper you wrote when you were in college that you really worked hard on, and at one time in your life it was very important, but now you sort of remember it, but you can't even remember whether it was 12 pages long or 18 or 20. You know, It's not that you've forgotten it, but, you, but it's not that intense. So when I look upon my own work, I look upon because it is bitter and because it is my heart, which you have over there, I think of Iris, who was the main character, and she seems almost like a bitten-off part of my own heart, and I remember her very well, and I remember Jinx, I remember him playing basketball, but I remember these people in a way that I might remember real people that is like snapshot memory. I'm not remembering so much the whole phenomenon of a written work. It's more like I'm remembering actual people. When, when we have an artist, an artist in her body of work, and that artist steps back and looks at it, uh, does she see herself as, I am an artist, that's who I am, that's what I am, or does she simply say, hey, look, I'm, I'm a whole human being. I do things like brush my teeth and, and go to the baseball game, and that's something that I do, but not what I am. Well, again, I don't know how to answer that. It depends on how one defines the personality. Are we the, are we a complete entity in terms of all these manifold definitions? You could also say we are as many people as as many people know us. You know, William James says that we our identities are m multiple in terms of how many people know us. You know, that you're a father to somebody, but you are a son to somebody else, and and probably those two people are very different. If you are a father to some children, you're a different person than you are as the son to your own father. And yet, you're the same person. You know, it's kind of a mystery that way. There's another issue that, that I'd like to discuss with you, and that is the distinction, if there is one, between literary fiction and genre fiction. You have addressed both in your essays and, of course, as a writer, I, I guess you would say that you have written both. Well, I love genre work. To me, genre is to be distinguished from traditional fiction in one basic way. The genre work will always explain itself or come to a resolution in, in the last chapter. And that's why we read genre. That's why we read, say, Sherlock Holmes, because there's a mystery. It begins with a mystery, and if, if the writer is really good, we're mystified. But then we don't remain mystified. By the end of the novel or the story, it's cleared up. The same thing is not necessarily true with traditional fiction. You can read a whole novel by um, Thomas Pynchon, let's say, or Thomas Mann, and you, still, you might still be a bit mystified at the end because there aren't any clear answers. There are some people who love genre because it has a formulaic symmetry, and there's a satisfaction in that. I do like that, but I don't always write that way. Is Rosamond Smith uh, a literary writer or a genre writer? 
I'm afraid Rosamond Smith is getting to be more of a literary writer. I had wanted to have a pseudonym that could be a repository for the kind of writing that basically I don't do. It was supposed to be cinematic and swift-moving and working, if not to formula, at least working to form. And it would have qualities that Oates doesn't have, swiftness and relative uh, superficiality is not the best word. I don't really mean that, but a narrative that moves swiftly along like a, like a speedboat across the water rather than going more slowly like a, a heavier vehicle, which is more like what Oates does. Blonde, for instance, is, a, is obviously a novel, a novel novel. It's a very traditional novel. It's a postmodernist and experimental novel. It's psychologically realistic, and it's not really a, in any way a genre work because we don't know clearly how the mystery turns out. But I've written other works in which there, is a mur there are murders, there are deaths that seem mysterious, and then people in the novel seek to find out the truth, and by the end of the novel, they and the reader have found out the truth. And so that was supposed to be the Rosamond Smith novels. But they've gotten longer, I'm afraid, and they've gotten more poetic. So I was thinking of actually choosing a new pseudonym and going back to a more spare style. You recommend that? <laughs> <laughs> I, I keep thinking of Joyce Lovecraft or Joyce Chandler. <laughs> well, Lovecraft had the same problems. He was just too ornate. I mean, he's a wonderful writer, but very poetic, and he wasn't moving as, as swiftly along, let's say, as Edgar Allan Poe or Stephen King, and that's why he didn't uh, make very much money with his work. What about Anne Rice? I haven't read Anne Rice. I know she's very uh, detailed. She does a lot of research. I haven't read her, actually. When you're involved in a book, whether it be Rosamond Smith, whether it be a collection of short stories, but more when you're writing these novels, the word often used to describe you, and maybe it's your own word, is obsessive. You get caught up in it to such a great degree. How do you deal with that obsessiveness in terms of the rest of your life? I think writing Blonde was the most extreme experience in my life, and I don't intend to repeat it. It was obsessive, partly because I had just identified with Norma Jean in, in, in many ways, some of them somewhat personal. Also, Norma Jean was very much like girls with whom I went to junior high school, girls I remember from the past who were from broken homes, who were rather like the young Marilyn Monroe. They were so eager to be pretty and to be pleasant. They wanted to get married. They wanted to have babies, as, as Norma Jean did. In a way, it was almost an accident that Marilyn Monroe emerges out of Norma Jean, because what Norma Jean really wanted was to be a housewife and mother. I keep thinking of of that obsessiveness that you have. Uh, you, you make a comment in, uh, in, in a, a written piece that this book was an attempt not to look at her, but to actually be her. That's the way it became. And so if you read the novel, you actually become Norma Jean, and then this bizarre celebrity starts to happen to you. At first, it's like a glimmering in the, in the future, at the horizon, and you think, oh, well, it's not, it's not going to be real. Norma Jean says, well, I don't really look like that. She's shown these beautiful still photographs of herself, and she says, well, but I don't really look like that. And the photographer says, no, you don't look like that, but it doesn't matter because the photograph looks like that. And that's all that matters. Well, when you come toward the end of the book and the celebrity is full flower, then who has control of Marilyn Monroe? And this is not just simply Marilyn Monroe, but what we've seen in the past decade is celebrity and the, the cult of celebrity has gotten so out of hand that you wonder who has control of not merely Marilyn Monroe, but Tom Cruise, Meryl Streep, Michael Jackson, and so on, Michael Jordan, and so on and so forth. Well, it seems to be something that's becoming a, a national obsession because we don't have any sacred icons, so we have to create these secular icons, and they're in our society, they're tied in with selling running shoes and selling tickets to, to movies and so forth. Yes, I think it's a very interesting question. 
who has control? Well, the media has control, but the media is manifold. I mean, what is the media? There are many different forms of the media. It's like a, it's like a great octopus. And if you were somebody who touched upon celebrity in some way, you would probably find that you couldn't stop it. You know, it's like a, an, a faucet you turn on. You say, well, I'd like to be famous, I guess, because maybe then I'd make some money. And people from my old high school would call me up, and my parents <laughs> would be so fond of me, and everybody would be proud of me. So you say, well, I'll be famous for a while, and you turn the faucet on. But then you can't turn the faucet off. So suddenly you want to go just down the street to have dinner in, in your, your neighborhood restaurant, and you want to be with your friends. But suddenly you can't because there, there's a small army of autograph seekers out in the street. And there's a film crew and there's television and they're taking your photograph and you say, hey, I don't, I don't want this anymore. Now I want to go back to being my own self. You can't do it. So I think that's the nightmare that Marilyn Monroe stumbled into, that she was a very, very vivacious, beautiful girl in her 20s. And it was fine that photographers were taking her picture all the time and she was even exhibiting her beautiful body. Then the years go by and she's over 30. She's 35. She's 36. She knows now that the camera is going to catch her in such a way that will reveal her age. She'll be like Elizabeth Taylor was uh, shortly to be exposed in all the tabloids. We've seen these ugly photographs of Elizabeth Taylor, she's gotten a little heavy, and there the photographs are, and you can't hide. So suddenly the media that had seemed to be your friend and was promulgating your image and you're making money, now the media is out to get you. And I think that's a terrifying experience. Obviously, uh, being a novelist and, and uh, author and critic is not the same as being a rock and roll star or a motion picture star. But there must be a degree of that for Joyce Carolos as well. How do you deal with that? My situation is actually very different because I have a, you could say I have a very finite and even sequestered life. I am a professor at Princeton University. I have a specific home. I spend a lot of time in my room. And I go out, go, I go out of my room and I go running and jogging with my husband. I see a few friends, I go to university, and I do these things over and over again. I'm not like a rock star who would be on the road in different cities and playing to 30,000 or 50,000 fans and having that ex extraordinary, almost out-of-control situation. What these people need is tremendous bouts of energy that in some cases they have to get artificially. They have to start taking drugs because nobody has that much energy every night. I mean, to be a writer, it's a much more quiet life. I could spend five years on a novel if I really wanted to, and I could write one page a day very carefully and slowly. I don't have to go out there and do the performance things that these people do. So there's a big difference. But you can go out in public without being mobbed or harassed. I would say that's true. I have been known to go out in public without being mobbed. I, I sometimes think that the worst of all worlds would be a celebrity who couldn't make money. Oh, you're right. That is so true. That's very well put. Because this person's getting nothing out of it. What are some examples of that? There must be some. I would gather that a, an, an aging TV star... Maybe Mickey Rooney of 10 years ago. Someone who is, is not actively working. Right. Someone not yeah. actively working, yeah. but who has the celebrity but can't do anything with it. Maybe Tanya Harding. <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting... But sometimes the media can do these cruel things. They take a picture of you as you are now. They were doing that with Veronica Lake when she was in her 50s. And then when she, she was in her 20s, she was a gorgeous young woman, actress. And then she was this alcoholic broken down bag woman. So they can show the two photographs and you're certainly not getting anything out of that. You know, I, when I thought Tanya Harding, it occurred to me that she almost sounds like a character out of a Joyce Carol Oates novel. You're right about that, but she somehow is real, I guess. What's she doing now? Uh, we'll she's not to, making money. <laughs> we'll have to ask about that. Joyce Carol Oates, Dick and I were talking beforehand and, and we have both been our own little obsession with pulp writers and the writers of the 30s. And 
I know that you've read a lot in that area, and I'm curious how much pulp writing itself has influenced your own writing. Do you consider Lovecraft a pulp writer? Well, he wrote for the pulp, sure, Weird yeah. Tales. Yeah, well, certainly I like Lovecraft very much. I don't know how to even answer that. The people who seem to have influenced me the most, obviously and most consciously, are the great modernist writers, James Joyce and Thomas Mann, and certainly D.H. Lawrence, Hemingway, and Faulkner. I was reading Faulkner in high school. I was reading Eudora Welty. And then I, I read Virginia Woolf a little later. I read with great interest and ongoing admiration Emily Dickinson, but I don't think she has influenced me. And then there are other, there's a myriad of other people. I mean, I read hundreds or thousands of other people. So I don't know to what extent they've influenced me. Raymond Chandler has not influenced me at all, but I like his writing. You, you clearly have admiration for Chandler and for people like Ross MacDonald and, and Cornell Woolrich, who was so peculiar. Very interesting, wasn't he? He didn't fit into any, any definition. Have you, have you ever read any of his early works? I've read some short stories of his, but I don't remember the titles. They always seemed very special and, and strange and, as I say, not fitting into any genre definition, really. He wrote half a dozen um, very Scott Fitzgeraldish jazz-era novels. When the Depression began, that career ended. And that's when he started writing his pulp stuff. To make more money, or to, yes. to have sales. Well, I didn't know about that early career. Then do you like those novels? I only read one of them. I, the jazz slang was so dense, I couldn't understand yeah. what I was reading. Yeah, it was dated. But that, that is very, very interesting. I think Lovecraft is just an American original and such a fascinating personality. One of the reasons that we like Lovecraft, if we like him, is that his personality suffuses all his writing. And now it's, uh, I think he died in 1937 or 38, uh, more than 60 years, and he's in his prime. He is in his prime, and what, what a sad life. He, he virtually died of starvation. He was living on seven cents a day. Joyce Carol Oates, you write all sorts of work from uh, novellas such as Blackwater to full-length novels, Blonde, because it is bitter, Belle Fleur, to plays. First, how do you determine what form a work is going to finally be in, number one? And number two, is there any form that you prefer? The most difficult form is a novel, especially a long novel, because it's, it's extended in time, and the psychological tension involved in and staying with that, I think, is, can be sometimes devastating for many people. And there are some people who just should never write novels. It's like some people should never be running marathons. They just don't have that kind of stamina. They're sprint people, and they're happy right, you know, running a short, a short race is fine, but a long one brings out too much anxiety in, in the personality. I very much like writing plays, and I have a number of one-act plays that I've written, and most of them have been performed. And I must say that I love working with actors. If you want to write anything that's remotely funny, the stage is the place for it. It's a communal situation. People are apt to laugh in the theater. When people are all alone reading a novel, it's possible they may smile, but almost never laugh out loud. I, I bet I've probably laughed out loud five times in the past year reading a book, but many, many times seeing a movie or seeing a play. And so... If you're in a somewhat lonely or melancholy state in your own emotional life, working in the theater is absolutely the answer. It's a solution. Have you ever thought about getting to Broadway? Well, Broadway now means mega musicals. We're talking like millions and millions of dollars. Uh, most of the people I know who write plays don't think about Broadway. You know, you think about off-Broadway. I have had plays off-Broadway. And there's, there's a cycle of one-act plays called Miss Golden Dreams about Marilyn Monroe that will be premiering at a contemporary American theater festival. Then what is the relationship between Blonde and the short one-act? Well, as I was writing the novel, there were so many scenes that seemed to me very dramatic. And I kind of branched off, and I did, I wrote them as if they were dramatic scenes, like cinematic scenes. 
and then I recast them into plays as I was writing the novel. Then when I was all done with the novel, I went back and I, I took out a few things that are not in the novel, but they're in plays, like one scene. Marilyn Monroe is in New York City. She's fled her marriage. She's finished with her marriage to the ex-athlete. She's doing a reading performance that evening of Uncle Vanya by Chekhov, and she's with her director. And it's just two characters in the scene. I took that out of the novel and put it into play form. It sounds, from what you're saying, that in a sense you've answered my first question, which is that the story itself tells you what the form is. That's right. I guess I felt that some scenes were so inherently dramatic that I, I didn't even want to put them into the novel because the novel is not a form where you want a lot of dialogue. I do have a lot of it in the blonde, but what, what you do with dialogue is basically you give it to actors and you let the actors perform it. When you're working on a regular novel as opposed to blonde, something which just goes from your imagination, you could take the characters and do with them what you will. You can create it so that there's never any manipulation that's visible on the part of the author. In dealing with Blonde, however, did you ever feel trapped by her life? I was definitely trapped by her life. I dropped out many really disturbing and somewhat sordid things I don't have in the novel. I know the novel's been criticized because it's sordid. But believe me, there were things I didn't put in that were much more disturbing. I really didn't want to go there. I sort of indicate or I hint at these things in passages, but I don't dramatize them. When you're writing a novel, you choose what to dramatize and what to summarize. And basically, that's the pacing of the novel. You can't dramatize everything in a novel. Some of it has to be summarized and it's just mentioned. And in a typical novel of the 20th century, some things are dealt with symbolically. For instance, I don't have all the foster homes that Norma Jean was actually in. I, I chose to write about one foster home, and I made it fictitious, actually. But I wanted it to seem to suggest the others. It was said in the biographies that probably Marilyn Monroe was molested in one of her foster homes when she was quite a little girl. Now, in my novel, she's not molested, but she's psychologically vulnerable in a way to these people because she actually loves them. She loves her foster mother, and she's very fond of her foster father, and then they expel her. So I'm taking a situation from real life and radically distilling it instead of five or six foster homes, only one. This situation that you've just described <clears throat> brings us back to the question of what is truth and, and other such very minor issues. Uh, and, and in fact, I believe you uh, you have an essay called Truth in Fiction, or was it Fiction in Truth? Something like that. The New York Times invited me to write about that. Well, how do you deal with that? As I was reading both Blonde and, in fact, more recently, just this morning, finished reading Blackwater, I kept thinking of a variety of books by a variety of authors, I suppose maybe uh, Capote's In Cold Blood was the, the master source of the nonfiction novel, a term which I despise, but there it is. Uh, and, and then we get things like the films of Oliver Stone. I've known people who came out of seeing JFK and thought that it was a strict documentary and were appalled when they were told, you know, there are things in there that are not true. Yes. It was very amorphous. I don't know what the answer is about this. Some people feel that art should be very moral and that it has a, a, a duty, so to speak, to hold a mirror up to life, that it should be a factual representation. Other people feel that art can be fantastic and very subjective and can deal with the surreal and the gothic and the hallucinatory. Uh, these are two more just ra radically different ideas. I do feel that there's an argument you can make that art should be moral, but at the same time, I suppose, ultimately, I would say that art has to just answer to itself. Well, you say that these are, are radically different ideas, and yet they do merge in, in such works as some of your own. Well, I always have a moral position. I felt that in writing Blackwater, I was writing about a situation inspired by Chappaquiddick of, Obviously, sure. of July sure. 1969. 
but I was not literally writing about it. You know, I, cha- I would change details here and there. I wanted to write about the situation, an older man in power, a very attractive man in politics, a younger woman who's throwing her life like dice. She's shaking the dice of her life to think, see whether she can have a love affair with this man. And the fact that it really happened is the starting point. It's not that I'm writing a journalistic account of it, so it's, it's really, in a way, just using it as symbolism. Joyce Carol Oates, now you've written Blonde, and your obsession to some degree is over. Where do you go from here? I'm working with these plays, and I'm certainly, like all playwrights, I can't wait to see the first rehearsals because then I can do some revisions. I love to revise, and I'm very interested to see what my director, Ed Herendine, has done in terms of casting. Who would he have chosen to play Marilyn Monroe? That's what I'm wondering. What about your motion pictures? There have been a number of them. Not very many, really. I wasn't involved with them. The most recent one is called Getting to Know You, directed by Lizanne Schuyler, and that will have an opening in New York in June, actually. And it has appeared at at film festivals around the world. It, it won a prize in Italy and was at Sundance. And that that is a fairly faithful representation of three stories melded together. But other films made from novels that might have been very different from the original work. They've been just very, very fictitious. What about that one with Laura Dern? I just stumbled across it recently. Yes. How did you feel about that? Well, again, it's very different from the story. It has a different title, and it's much longer. The short story would only have been like a 15-minute movie, but this is a full-feature film, so... The uh, screenwriter, Tom Cole, added a good deal. I feel it's autonomous. It's like it's over there, and the book or the story's over here, and that they don't need to be compared. But obviously, Smooth Talk has a happy ending, and my story doesn't. So that's the, that's a major difference. You, you clearly feel a certain um, distance from these films, and for good reasons, which you've indicated. Do you feel a connection once you've written a book and it's gone out? Now, you say that the obsession is not there anymore, but do you still feel connected with something you wrote a year ago, something you wrote 20 years ago? I do. I feel the connection with the people, with the characters. That's a strange thing. It's as if I'd known them. Now, I know that I invented them and I wrote them, but when I think of characters in my novel, them, I'm thinking of people. I have little like snapshot visions of them in my head and they're walking along or it's like somebody that I used to see. Now, I know I never saw them because they were in the book, but I'm saying that psychologically it's a little quirk or a strangeness in memory because I sort of think that I can remember seeing them the way I remember my young cousins from 1971 or something or the way you might remember someone you went to high school with. You actually saw this person. That's how I remember my characters. Do they ever talk to you? They don't talk to me, but I can sort of see them there. You know, I could kind of zoom in, if I may use a metaphor. I could sort of zoom in on what they were doing, and it might be a scene from the novel, or it might be something else that I didn't know that they did that's not in the novel. Like, what, are, what is this character? What's Jinx doing from because it is bitter and because it is my heart? You know, in a sense, he dies at the end of the novel, but yet there were some unexplained parts in, in his life, you know, that weren't in my novel. Well, what's he doing? You know, it sounds a little quirky, and I, and I mean it to be somewhat playful. Do you ever look back at an earlier work and say, I wish I'd done that a little differently or a lot differently? I I'm not a kind of writer that's self-conscious. As you know, Henry James revised his work for the, the uh, s- standard edition of Henry James. And William Butler Yeats spent time throughout his adult life revising his poetry. Even W.H. Auden was revising some of his famous poems. I'm not someone who would do that. I feel that the work has to stand for what it is. And I did actually do a little revision, but very small, sort of like tinkering revision within my novel Them, which has just been reissued by the Modern Library. It's been in print for 30 years, and when I reread it, 
knowing it would be reprinted, I asked the editor at the Modern Library if I could revise maybe less than 10 pages. He said, absolutely. So I did that, but I called it more like fine-tuning. I didn't add any new scenes. I basically got in there and fine-tuned. Joyce Carol Oates, you've written this huge body of work. Is there any book that you would look at and say either, that book best represents me in my whole body rather than where I am now? And is there any book that you look at and say, who wrote that? I certainly didn't. The novel that most represents me right now is definitely Blonde. Sure. And then the predecessor novel for that in terms of difficulty and psychic anguish <laughs> is What I Lived For. What I Lived For is about a man meeting his destiny, and Blonde is about a woman meeting her destiny. The hero of What I Lived For is a quintessential male. He's very macho. I happen to like him very much, but some people hated him. And then the, the hapless young heroine of Blonde is someone who both is and isn't Marilyn Monroe. I mean, she obviously becomes Marilyn Monroe in the eyes of the world, but in her own uh, self-definition, she wasn't. Then a book that I would say that I didn't like any longer would probably be a book from my early years, but then I wouldn't have read it for a while, so I'm a little hesitant just to erase it. But a novel that I could be happy if it didn't exist would be The Assassins from many years ago. If it just wasn't there, I don't think I would miss it. You've been listening to an interview with Joyce Carol Oates, recorded May 3rd, 2000, while she was on tour for her epic novel, Blonde. My co-host was Richard A. Lupoff. This interview was digitized and edited in August 2022. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com, and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.